Hello everyone, I'm Wendy Myers of MyersDetox.com. Welcome to the Myers Detox podcast where we just discuss everything related to heavy metal detoxification. And today we'll be talking about fasting and how can you, you can utilize fasting to improve your health, improve your immunity, lose weight, and assist in detoxification. Because a fasting state is very much a detoxification state because when you're losing fat, all the toxins stored in your fat come out. And that's one of the reasons people have really uncomfortable symptoms when they are fasting. They get headaches and they feel kind of achy or fluey or uh, you know, just uh, a lot of a host of other different symptoms that people really don't like and why they avoid fasting. And I certainly started out uh, in the beginning of my health journey trying out a fast and I just felt terrible on the first day and I thought, I'm just not, not gonna try that again, make that mistake again, but I wasn't doing it correctly. There's a right way and a wrong way and a transitionary phase uh, to transition into doing a successful fast that's more comfortable. So we'll give you all kinds of tips and tricks on how to do that today. And our guest, David Jockers, um, he's, he's an expert on fasting. He hosted a whole summit on fasting. And we're going to be discussing activating autophagy with fasting for detoxification and deep cellular rejuvenation. And some things we'll talk about is how to transform your health reduce inflammation and lose weight with fasting. We'll talk about balancing blood sugar, improving immunity, improving longevity, and hormonal and restorative benefits of fasting. We'll talk about you know, what exactly is the fasting mimicking diet? What role does that play in fasting? And should you do a water fast or a bone broth or a juice fast? What's the difference there? What are the benefits, pros and cons? And also, most importantly, we'll discuss who should avoid fasting. You know, there's so many benefits of fasting. There's a lot of talk about it. It's a very, you know, hot topic right now. And I think some people try it when it isn't the right thing for them. So we'll discuss who those population groups are that maybe should put fasting on hold for the moment. So I know you guys listening to this show are very interested in detox and are curious about what your toxin levels are. Well, I created a quiz. You can check out heavymetalsquiz.com. Take this two minute quiz based on some lifestyle questions. You can get your results, whether you're kind of in a, a low risk group, whether you really should be detoxing or like a 911, you need to start detoxing right away. And after that quiz, you'll get a free video series that will answer your most frequently asked questions about detox. Where do you begin? What kind of testing can you do? What kind of supplements are best? And I answer a ton of other questions related to detox. So go check that out at heavymetalsquiz.com. Our guest today, Dr. David Jockers, is a doctor of natural medicine, a functional nutritionist and corrective care chiropractor. He runs one of the hottest natural health websites, highly recommended, drjockers.com, which has gotten over 1 million monthly visitors. His work has been seen on popular media, such as the Dr. Oz Show and Hallmark Home and Family. And he's also the author of the best-selling book, The Keto Metabolic Breakthrough by Victory Belt Publishing and is a world-renowned expert in the areas of ketosis, fasting, and the ketogenic diet. 
He's also the host of the popular Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, and he lives in Canton, Georgia with his wife, Angel, and his twin boys, David and Joshua, and his daughter, Joyful. Such a beautiful name. You can learn more about Dr. Jockers at drjockers.com. Dr. Jockers, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely, Wendy. Great to be on with you. Yeah, so we're going to talk today about fasting. And so this is a, a great topic. I mean, there are so many reasons why people should be fasting. But first, let's get into what is the root cause of disease? So, so many people today suffer from chronic illness, uh, have multiple diagnoses on multiple medications. What is going on? What is behind all this? Well, for sure. That's a really great question. And so basically, when we look at disease, our body is constantly, you know, it's like, it's one of the laws of the universe where basically our body is constantly being broken down, this, this law of entropy. We're under attack. You know, that when you look at things under a microscope, it's, it's literally a war every single day. So our cells have regenerative forces. Our body, the, the, the vital force within us, is constantly working to help heal and repair our body. It's constantly giving us the greatest survival advantage. But the forces of the environment are constantly breaking us down. They're degenerating us. And one marker that we look at is inflammation. And I'm sure all the listeners have heard that inflammation is actually a wonderful thing. However, when it's out of control, it causes uh, chronic disease development. And so basically we think about inflammation, we know that systemic infections, meaning infections that got into our bloodstream, spread throughout our body, and oftentimes got into our lungs or, or our heart or our nervous system and created things like meningitis or pneumonia, epicarditis, different things like that have killed more people throughout the history of mankind than anything else. And so over the years, our body has adapted and it's created this process called inflammation. Inflammation protects us from dying quickly from a systemic infection. It keeps the infection under control and allows our body to be able to heal and repair and, and you know, not have to deal with uh, you know, a crisis, a, a not have to deal with sepsis, basically, which can kill us quickly. However, the problem is as long as we have pathogens getting into our bloodstream, maybe from leaky gut, or if we have other stressors, maybe it's EMF stress, maybe it's just chronic emotional stress, different things like that, our body really takes it the same way. It thinks that we're under threat from dying of an infection, so it ramps up inflammation. And when we have a chronic onslaught of inflammation, that over time wears down the tissues and cells of our body and creates chronic disease. So inflammation is something, I consider it like a fire in a fireplace. So on a cool, you know, a cold night, beautiful thing to have a fire in your fireplace. But if you go and you take gasoline and you dump it on the fire, now it's gonna start to burn up your house. And if you just continue to dump gasoline on there and do nothing to, to help mitigate the fire, then before long, your house is going to be completely destroyed. And that's what's happening in our society. Most people are doing things every day, the foods that they eat, the thoughts that they're thinking, their sleep habits, their lifestyle habits, that are just promoting this, this inflammation. And it's literally uh, burning up their entire body. Yes. Yeah. And so, so what can we do to, to mitigate? What are some of the, the, you know, tools in your toolkit to help mitigate this inflammation. And when you have inflammation, you have pain as well. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Inflammation can affect any single organ system in the body. So if you're struggling with anxiety, brain fog, depression, uh, those are all signs of brain inflammation. If you've got eczema, acne, rashes, hives, dry, like real dry, brittle uh, skin, skin that's aging too fast, that's all inflammation. You can have pain in your joints. You could have low energy. That could be uh, inflammation in your adrenals could be inflammation in your brain. That could be inflammation affecting your thyroid. So all these major symptoms, if you have chronic underlying symptoms, you're just not feeling your best on a regular basis, then you're dealing with inflammation. And so one thing that we can absolutely do is start with the food that we put in our body. And in the natural health world, we talk a lot about food because it's something that we have conscious control over. And there's a lot of things you may be impacted by that are affecting your inflammation that you just don't have as much control over. Like sometimes the air we breathe that, you know, depending on the environment we're in, we may not be able to control that. However, we can control the food we put in our body. And so we know that higher carbohydrate foods promote more insulin release. And insulin is a hormone that comes out of our blood, well, it comes out of our pancreas. And its job is to take sugar out of the bloodstream and put it into the cells. We know that high blood sugars, when we eat, you know, a bunch of carbohydrates, like uh, let's say, you know, growing up, I used to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, or my breakfast was usually Cheerios with skim milk and a banana and a cup of orange juice, right? Because my, my mom would never get the uh, Fruit Loops or whatever I saw on TV. So she got what she thought was healthy, Cheerios, put a banana on there, orange juice, but all those things jacked up my blood sugar. When you have high blood sugar, the sugar molecules will actually bind to proteins in your bloodstream and create something called an advanced glycation end product. So if we think about the, the first letter of each of those words, A for advanced, G for glycation end product. So A-G-E, they accelerate the aging process. So we know high blood sugar is actually neurotoxic. You look at somebody with diabetes, they end up with peripheral neuropathy where literally the nerves become destroyed and they have numbness and tingling. Sometimes they can't feel anything. They end up with optic neuritis. They lose their vision, uh, kidney failure. It also damages the endothelial lining in their blood vessels, and creates heart disease. So we know that these things are really damaging and dangerous for our body. So insulin actually is, is a superhero because it takes the sugar and puts it into cells. Now we can use it for energy. The problem is when we continue to eat high carbohydrate foods and we continue to eat a lot of meals throughout the day. Okay, I, when I was growing up, I would eat five or six meals a day and it was constantly carbohydrate rich foods. And that was this constant bombardment of blood sugar and insulin. The problem with too much insulin is insulin turns on inflammatory gene pathways. So it actually activates certain gene pathways within the cell that amplify the message of inflammation throughout the entire body, like a siren going on throughout an entire city. So all of a sudden now we get this massive load of inflammation that goes on in, in the body. And as long as insulin's elevated, that inflammation is going to continue to go on and on and on. And it makes sense because you know, for our ancestors, when they would consume food, any food, even low carbohydrate foods, so I'm an advocate of the ketogenic diet, but even if you eat a ketogenic meal, like an egg or something like that, you're going to get some release of insulin. It's just going to be lower than if you were to eat, you know, a bowl of Cheerios or something. When you eat food, you naturally are bringing in pathogens, potential pathogens. You're bringing in microbes. And the body start, wants to get ready to help prevent against some sort of infection. 
So that's why when we eat, it triggers insulin and now it also turns on some inflammation because the act of eating itself is pro-inflammatory. It actually turns on inflammation. So our bodies are, again, ready to fight against the infection. Now, the issue is, again, when we're continually eating throughout the day and eating foods that are very insulogenic, that turn on a lot of insulin, now we end up with too much inflammation. We also develop something called insulin sensitivity where our body no longer responds. The cells, that receptors no longer respond well to insulin. So we continue to produce more and more and more insulin, just bombarding the body with this message to promote inflammation. Insulin also causes us to store fat. We can't burn fat as long as insulin's elevated in the bloodstream. So we end up gaining body fat, losing, oftentimes losing lean body mass, and on top of that, just promoting, like dumping gasoline on that fire, promoting tons and tons of inflammation. So we can start with the food that we eat, eating less carbohydrates, eating more healthy fats. Fats are very satiating. They need less insulin. Our body produces less insulin when we, when we consume fat. And uh, many fat sources are very nutrient dense, things like avocados, olives, extra virgin olive oil, grass-fed meats, uh, pasture-raised eggs, things like that can be really healthy, really satiating, and they keep insulin levels down and under control. I always tell people, make these three big changes to start in your diet. Reduce sugars and grains, get rid of bad fats, that's gonna be all your processed vegetable oils, corn oil, soybean oil, safflower, cottonseed oil, those are fats. They're not insulogenic. However, they create a lot of oxidative stress and promote inflammation in the body. So we want to get rid of those. And you yeah, typically it's so find sad those. when you, sorry to interrupt, but it's so sad yeah. when you see people eating Chinese food or a healthy food yeah. or all the, the, all the beautiful display, all the pre-prepared food are like whole foods and they're just soaked in this uh, industrial <laughs> seed oils. And it's oh, just, yeah. ah, it's such a waste. It's what you have to cook at home or you're getting this genetically modified soybean oil and canola oil and all these horrible inflammatory oils in this healthy food. Yeah, that's arguably the most inflammatory thing you could put in your body are these processed damaged fats. So you wanna get rid of them, you wanna stick with things like coconut oil, avocados, avocado oil, olive oil, different things like that. These are really healthy fats you wanna be consuming. And then you wanna change the meat that you eat. You wanna get rid of the commercial commercialized animal products. You want to stick with grass-fed, organic, wild-caught animal products. I know your, your listeners know, I'm sure you've mentioned this, but uh, you know when animals are eating pesticide-laden grains, they bioaccumulate all the different toxins, the glyphosate, heavy metals, different things like that, uh, antibiotics that are often used and treated with and so then that ends up in their meat, their dairy, the eggs, things like that. We obviously want to avoid that. We want to reduce our toxin exposure. So getting the grass-fed organic animal products gives you more nutrients and less toxins. That's always a rule with nutrition is you want to maximize your nutrients and minimize your toxins that you're consuming for your meals. So that's just a great place to start is making those diet changes. And then I recommend don't snack. That's a big problem that a lot of people have. Stick with two to three meals a day. And obviously we're going to talk about intermittent fasting as we go on. But you know, if you're, if you're a breakfast, lunch, and dinner person, just eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner and don't snack between meals. Instead, hydrate. You know, there's a part of our brain in our hypothalamus that had our hunger center and our thirst center are right next to each other in the paraventricular nucleus in our hypothalamus. And 
because food is so easy, it's so prevalent in our society, it's easy to get. And when we eat, we actually get a dopamine release. That actually, that makes us feel good. We have a natural, it's human nature to become addicted to eating. That's, that's actually part of our nature. It's, it's meant for survival. We just have to control that. So it's very easy for the hunger center to actually cross into the thirst center. So most people, when they want a snack, they're actually thirsty. And they actually need water and sometimes electrolytes. And if they do that, they will no longer be hungry and they'll be able to go longer between meals. So start hydrating your body. You know, I recommend drinking at least minimum half your body weight in ounces every day. Do good hydration when you first wake up in the morning and then try to drink eight to 16 ounces of water between meals. And if you do that, you'll notice that the desire for snacking goes down significantly. So in some cases, I find that some people do well when they just put a little tiny bit of salt, good sea salt, like Redmond's Real Salt or Celtic or something like that. Put that right on your tongue and uh, drink some water and boom, it shuts down cravings, sugar cravings. The water actually gets into your stomach and suppresses a hormone that your stomach produces called ghrelin. When, you're, when your stomach, when you don't have anything in there and you're used to eating, so it's, it's also a um, conditioned response, your body will release ghrelin. And when you drink water, it stretches the stomach, suppresses ghrelin. Ghrelin tells your, your, your brain that you're hungry. So it suppresses that, so you no longer feel that experience. And you'll notice that your energy is better. When you're hydrated and you've got the electrolytes you need, your nervous system is able to run really, really well, really smooth. You're able to think sharper, clearer, and have more energy. Yeah, I always do that if I'm craving food. I just have a glass of tea and uh, that can get water, but a little bit of flavor, a little bit of, you know, satisfaction of that craving and, you know, done. so I'm not eating some big, huge meal and ruining my dinner. <laughs> and, and so let's get into talking about fasting. So one of the main reasons people want to fast is not because they want to starve themselves, but to enjoy the benefits of autophagy. So what is autophagy and why is that important? Yeah, so autophagy actually means self-healing. And so our body has either a building every day, you know, based on around our meals, we're going to go through either a building phase or a cleansing, healing, and regenerating phase. And so autophagy means self-eating where our body will actually break down older, damaged, cellular organelles like mitochondria that we have in our cells. So these things become damaged by oxidative stress just as a normal part of life. And the key is we've got to go in there, we've got to break down the damaged mitochondria, the damaged different key units, like there's an endoplasmic reticulum and different, different units that are in our cell. And we take the raw materials and we can actually form new healthy ones. It's, it's absolutely amazing what the body can do. It can take a dysfunctional mitochondria that can't actually use fat for fuel because the mitochondria should be able to take fat and produce it into a, a ton of ATP. And so over time, though, if the mitochondria becomes damaged, it can't do that. So when autophagy is turned on in our body, we're able to get rid of that bad mitochondria and use the raw materials of it to form a new, healthy, strong, metabolically efficient mitochondria that can now, use burn, now, can now take fat and use it for fuel and produce rampant amounts of cellular energy. So we become more efficient human beings. And the key with autophagy is insulin. So as long as insulin is elevated, we can't self-heal. When insulin goes down, 
all right? And everybody has a certain threshold, right? That hasn't been drawn out well enough in science, but we know that when your insulin levels go down, all right, that's going to turn on autophagy in your system. And so the best way to get insulin down is through fasting, just missing meals. Anytime you eat anything, even if you have a bulletproof coffee or, you know, a tablespoon of coconut oil, you're going to get some release of insulin. Okay. Now that's going to be better again, like I said, than, you know, eating a big bowl of Cheerios, but you're going to get some release of insulin. That's going to blunt that self-healing mechanism. So the best way to turn on autophagy is just don't eat. And that may just mean skipping one meal can turn on some autophagy in your body. And the better that your body gets at using fat for fuel, the easier it is to turn on that autophagy mechanism because your body tends to produce less insulin overall. So when you miss a meal, insulin suppressed, autophagy turns on. Now, most people are out there and they are sugar burners and sugar cravers. And the way that you know that your body's primarily running off of sugar is if you can't go more than four hours without a meal. So if you eat a meal, let's say you eat breakfast at 8 a.m. and you're starving by 12, that is a sign that you know either you did not eat enough food in that meal or you, uh, you are in sugar burning mode because your body should be able to actually, you know, when your insulin goes down, your body should switch. And as your blood sugar is coming down, it should say, okay, now we're going to go into the bank and start using our stored body fat for fuel. And when you turn, when you, when you start burning body fat, you actually create something called a ketone, a ketone body. And ketones are important because all of our cells can use fatty acids for fuel, except for red blood cells, and then also your brain. So your brain actually needs ketones. Fatty acids cannot cross through the blood-brain barrier. So ketones are a water-soluble molecule that the liver produces. It turns fatty acids into ketones in order to fuel the brain. So when your blood sugar goes down, if your body's good at turning the fatty acid into a ketone and that getting across the, the blood-brain barrier into the brain, now you feel very efficient. In fact, ketones are a preferred energy source because you produce less metabolic stress, meta, less metabolic waste, and you produce significantly more energy when you're using ketones as a fuel source as opposed to glucose. They're a really clean burning fuel. Glucose is a very inefficient it produces very little energy and a lot of metabolic waste. So it's a very dirty fuel. So we want that clean fuel source. We want to be able to use that on a regular basis and have the metabolic flexibility to be able to switch between glucose or sugar and, and ketones and using that for fuel. And so if you are between meals and you start to get irritable and you have anxiety and um, you start feeling hangry, right? All of these types of reactions are signs that you're very metabolically inflexible. Your body's not good at burning your own body fat and producing these ketones. So intermittent fasting is a strategy that can really help us get metabolically flexible so we can get ketones up into the brain. Ketones are also very neuroprotective. They actually turn off what's called the neuroinflammasome, which is a gene pathway or a set of receptors that amplify inflammation in the brain. 
When that pathway is elevated for a long period of time, we experience depression, anxiety, and over time, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, right? All these chronic neurodegenerative conditions. So ketones are actually very protective of your brain cells. So we want to be able to use that. And we, we turn on autophagy, where again, our body breaks down these older, damaged cellular organelles and turns them into new, healthy cellular organelles. It's like taking your old car, breaking it down and using all of you know, the, the pieces of it to build you know, a brand new BMW 2020, right? Or something, right? Or whatever car you like. That's basically what your body does, right? So I've got a uh, 2008 Ford Escape hybrid that I still have. I work for mostly from home, so I don't even drive that much. Um, but you know, it would be like taking that down. I've got like 150,000 miles on it or something. It would be like taking that, breaking that down and creating like, yeah, I don't know, uh, you know, a Corvette, right? Or something, some sort of fancy, more efficient car, right? A Tesla, right? Electric car or something, you know? So that's basically what your body is able to do. We just have to create the environment that allows for that. And that means suppressing insulin. So a lower carbohydrate diet, not necessarily all the time, but kind of as a, as, a, as a base, as a foundation, along with intermittent fasting. And then on top of that, we need to make sure we're exercising. Exercise really helps this process. And then also good sleep and stress management are very important with it as well. Yeah, I mean, I think people don't realize when they don't sleep enough, the next day they can have the insulin levels of a diabetic person and get these blood sugar swings and more food cravings and just takes them on this roller coaster. And I definitely notice that one if I don't sleep enough one night. And so let's talk about strategies to activate autophagy. So you mentioned intermittent fasting. And then, and then I think people definitely should start there before they start of you know, a fast where they're doing like a day mm -hmm. or a three or 10 day fast. Well, what do you recommend as far as like staging it out and kind of graduating to longer fasting periods? Yeah, I agree with you. I think that starting out and really mastering a good intermittent fasting schedule is the best way to start. So what you do is in the beginning, you start with a 12 hour eating window, 12 hour fasting window and just an overnight fasting window. So let's say you ate your first meal at 8 a.m. and you finish your last meal at 8 p.m. That would be an example of a 12-hour eating window. And then you would have a resultant 12-hour fasting window from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. the next morning. So we call that the simple fast. For most people, that's pretty easy. For some individuals, they're used to eating like a late night snack or something like that. Obviously, it can be problematic in that case. And then what you do is when you wake up in the morning, you start your day by hydrating your body well. I mentioned how you know, we all need water in the morning. So all of us are dehydrated when we first wake up because we're breathing out water vapor. The more that we breathe, the more water we lose. And so we want to rehydrate our system. It really helps us move our bowels, uh, helps our body detoxify, right? It's very, very important for that. It helps our body produce energy. So I recommend drinking at least 16 and if you can get up to like 32 to 48 ounces of water in the morning before you even think about food, right? So you have to get at least 16 ounces of water, good clean water into your system before you can even think about eating a meal. And when you do that, that suppresses the hunger hormone. A lot of people will tell me, I'm really hungry when I first wake up in the morning. Well, if you hydrate well, there's a good chance you're going to suppress that hunger. 
So if you can get 16 ounces of water down and you can do, you know, a lot of people will do warm lemon water, for example, can be a really, really good strategy. Maybe a little bit of minerals, like some salt, stuff like that. All great strategies. Um, herbal teas, things like that, fine. Uh, even if you want to do black coffee, you know, people ask me all the time, can I do coffee while I'm fasting? And I say, well, it really depends. Coffee should make you feel amazing. You should feel great. In fact, coffee, the, the, the caffeine and the chlorogenic acid that's in coffee actually stimulate autophagy. There are herbs that we'll discuss as we go on. Coffee is one of those that can stimulate greater levels of autophagy in your system. However, there are some individuals that don't feel good when they have coffee and it actually increases cravings. If that's happening to you, that's a sign your body's not responding well to it. So then you would not want to use it. But herbal teas, you know, coffee, if you, if you tolerate it well, all can be, can be fine. But if you're drinking coffee, remember that's a diuretic, right? So you want to make up that with, with extra water. So hydrating your body well, oftentimes that makes it easy to be able to push that fast out to 14 hours. And then if you continue to hydrate well in the morning, oftentimes it's pretty easy to push it out to 16, maybe even 18 hours of a fast. And I recommend just kind of gently, and it really depends on your stress levels, your body type, you know, everybody's a little bit different, but you want to try to extend that out to, you know, that 16 to 18 hour fast tends to be a really good sweet spot where your body starts getting better autophagy, better insulin management, and more human growth hormone production. So HGH is something your body produces when insulin goes down and HGH is your quintessential anti-aging hormone. It helps turn on your immune system. It helps to reduce inflammation. It helps to build bone tissue, build lean body tissue, so muscle tissue, and helps reduce body fat. So um, a lot of great benefits. They're also really good for skin health, um, regenerating different tissues in your body. So that's when you really turn that on. Now, there are some cases where it may be challenging for certain individuals to get to that 16 to 18 hour fast. But I would say probably two thirds, if not more of the individuals out there in society can really pretty easily within a week adapt to a 16 to 18 hour fast. And then you're eating your meals in like a six to eight hour eating window. So for some individuals, typically men like me, I can eat a I can eat a big meal. Like I, I can eat, I can take in a lot of calories with my meals. In fact, I don't even get hungry, Wendy, until I start eating. Like I'm very rarely ever hungry. And then I start eating and then I'm like, I am hungry. I'm going to eat a lot because I've, I've trained That's my me body. That like way. every meal. <laughs> yeah. I tra I've trained my body that way. For other individuals, you can't eat a lot of calories in a meal. So you might have to, you know, break that eight hour eating window and do three small meals, right? Also kind of depends on the health of your bile ducts, right? In your liver, I see that be a case or your stomach acid levels in your stomach. Some people don't have a gallbladder, then I have a pretty enough bile. In those cases, it's a good idea to eat smaller meals, right? In that eating window. So there are special, you know, circumstances and you kind of have to master, you have to experiment with things, help master it for yourself. But that's kind of a good sweet spot to get to. And then what I love to do, and I, I love to help people with is to where you're able to do a 24 hour fast one day a week. Okay. And I'm actually 8% body fat. Like you can see every muscle on my body, you know, and, and so I'm very, very lean, but I can actually do a one day. I do a 24 hour fast twice a week. So I ate lunch yesterday 
And then um, I fasted until, and my lunch was at one o'clock yesterday. I fasted until one o'clock today. And I worked out real intensely right before I broke the fast. So I worked out at 12 o'clock and I felt great. And my body was using ketones as a fuel source. And that exercise, particularly fasted exercise, really ramps up autophagy. And then I broke that fast with a really big high fat, high protein shake because it's easy on my digestive system. So I had good protein powder in there and avocado and coconut milk and all kinds of good stuff. And um, so anyways, then I'll eat a really good dinner tonight. So on your 24 hour fast, this is a sign that you're really metabolically healthy. If you're able to go from, let's say, for most people, they like to do dinner to dinner, okay? Um, for me personally, I like lunch to lunch. I can do dinner to dinner. Uh, I find that I actually sleep so much better at this stage in my life. I sleep so much better when I do the lunch to lunch fast. It's like in the middle of the week, it totally resets me and makes my Thursday that much more productive. And I used to, as the week went on and I was doing a lot of work, I would wear down on Thursdays and Fridays and I started implementing this and it felt so good. So I've continued to do this. And I'm ramping up autophagy. I'm down-regulating inflammation throughout my body and in my brain. So it's just a really great strategy. Now, again, I, I typically would recommend just one day a week for, for most people. Um, and that's a sign that you're metabolically healthy. And so during that period of time, you know, you're drinking a lot of water, hydrating your body well. And, you know, when you do eat, you eat well, right? That's, that's always the key is you're not trying to reduce the overall amount of calories that can happen naturally based on your satiety point, but you're just trying to eat till you're fully satiated. And again, that's a sign of really good metabolic health is doing that 24 hour fast. Now, once you're able to do a 24 hour fast, then you may want to consider a longer fast, a three-day fast or a five-day fast. And it can depend on your body type. If you're not looking to lose any weight, okay, then you may want to do what we call a partial fast. There can still be a lot of benefit to fasting because it helps to clean up your body. So even if you're not trying to lose weight, like I've never tried to lose weight my entire life. I've always been really thin. However, I've done longer fasts and they can be really helpful in healing for the body. And so for a lot of people, especially if you're not trying to lose weight, you might want to try something like a bone broth fast where you're drinking broth throughout the day and you're still keeping your calories low because there's only so much broth you're really going to be able to get in your system. You're keeping your overall calorie load down. And if you do that for about five days, uh, research, particularly by Walter Longo, has shown that this sort of calorie-restricted diet over about a five-day period of time, even a three-day period of time, can be really, really great for helping stimulate autophagy as well as stem cell development. In fact, you get a lot of stem cell development in your intestinal lining. So the, intest the cells in your intestines, they turn over every three to five days, and you get these amazing stem cells that are more resistant to stress that develop when you do some sort of a partial fast like this, even a 24 hour fast will have an incredible impact on the regenerative capacity of your intestinal lining. And that's important because we know things like autoimmune disease are related to leaky gut. So that's a critical component there. But doing a partial fast, there's also what's called the fasting mimicking diet, FMD, that a lot of practitioners use. And that was actually designed by Walter Longo. And it tends to be a high fiber, um, it's a low calorie diet, roughly 800 to 1200 calories, 800 to 1100 calories a day. The first day is 1100 calories. 
day two through five are 800 calories. And then you, and it basically it all comes in boxes. It's more or less nuts and olives and things like that. So it's high fat, uh, low protein and low carbohydrate and higher in fiber. And that has, is actually been clinically studied to help stimulate the stem cells and um, drive up human growth hormone and get all these great benefits, drive up autophagy in the system. And the key there is that's roughly under 40% of the calories of the average person needs. Most people need about 2000 calories a day. So the, the, the real magic in that fast happens day two through five where you're at 800 calories or in some cases less. So you're getting that, you know, that autophagy and stem cell development really ramping up. So that's another strategy. People do green juice fasting. Again, same concept. You're really not going to be able to consume that many calories if you're doing juicing. So, you know, you're, you're still in a calorie restricted state. And if you're doing that for several days, you know, that can be very beneficial as well. Yeah, I like, I like the yeah. juicing and bro yeah. bone broth fast because I think the people are just generally nutrient deficient and mineral deficient. And going like five days without food, you know, you're going to become even more deficient. And I like the thought of replacing and repleting minerals with bone broth and juice. Yeah, it can definitely be very, very beneficial. Now, I think as far as, you know, what interesting thing about fasting is we really have to have to reconsider the way we think about nutrients and nutrient deficiencies, because when autophagy gets turned on, the body has more than enough amino acids and B12 and different things like that. They're just not being able to be able to utilize them well. So when autophagy gets turned on, the body can, will get what it needs. The innate intelligence within us will get what it needs from damaged cells. We'll actually break down the damaged cells and get things that it needs. There's been people who have done 100-day fast, 200, 300-day fast. Now, these were very obese people. But when there's one guy, I think he did like a 400-day fast, right? And he, he ended up losing you know, 300 pounds uh, during that period of time. Didn't take any sort of multivitamin or whatnot. And they tested all his nutrient levels and all his nutrient levels were balanced and good. Hmm. It's like, wow, how did that he happen? Had a lot right? of, he had a lot of stores to yeah, draw from. Yeah. <laughs> he did. And the body has this amazing innate intelligence. It knows what it's doing. So that's great. So just for a few, uh, you know, short period of time, I, I would say the biggest difference with the partial fast is it's a little bit easier psychologically. And on top of that, for somebody that's really concerned about losing too much weight, it can help, help prevent that. So I think those are probably the biggest benefits there. But, you know, the water fast will definitely get you the best autophagy levels, right? The highest levels of autophagy and stem cells, but it can be a little harder on the body doing a full water fast. I know even for me, I actually, my last water fast I did really didn't feel that good. And I even got sick after I broke it. So I had been doing a lot of these and I found that I, what I believe happened is that my body fat was just so low, Right. And I worked out at the end of the fast and it probably just overwhelmed my system. And so you do have to be careful with it. So that's why I found like this year, I'm just doing the 24 hour fasts and it's like easy for me. I feel amazing. So you kind of, you, you experiment with different things and then you find what you feel like really works best for you. I find with doing the two 24 hour fasts that I don't lose muscle mass, that I'm actually, you know, I'm really strong doing great in the gym and, uh, and I'm still able to get the benefits of that autophagy and the ketones in my brain.
Yeah, it's interesting when I first started, uh, you know, getting into health and started doing a, a keto diet, and then I and then I read about fasting and started a fasting diet, and then by one p.m. I had a searing headache, and I <laughs> thought I'm never trying that again. So, what are some of the the symptoms and things to be aware of? when yeah. you first start a fast, what are some strategies you can do to mitigate those symptoms? For sure, and really the symptoms are gonna come down to several things. One is electrolyte imbalance, C, and dehydration in general. When insulin goes down, insulin actually tells our body to retain sodium. So, you know, we hear about like a low sodium diet for people that have high blood pressure. And that's actually, that actually works if somebody's on a high carbohydrate diet because we have, they have so much insulin in their system. They need to reduce salt. However, salt is really important for energy production, really important for our nervous system. So when your insulin goes down, when you're fasting, you need more sodium. You need to take in more salts, more minerals. So taking some good salts throughout the, the fast, or some people use like an electrolyte powder or something like that, can be really, really beneficial and will help keep your nervous system functioning better, will reduce cravings, reduce headaches, different things like that. So that's you know huge, that's a huge component. Uh, hunger is more of a condition response than anything. Like we can all go days without food, without really truly starving. Um, we've got plenty of energy stores in our liver, our muscle tissue, and then in our body fat. So just remember it's a condition response. Your body's way of trying to remind you to eat but water can help suppress that ghrelin response. So just hydrating, drinking some water can help reduce that. Herbal tea, like a warm tea oftentimes is, is very, very easy on the system and uh, people like that, you know, and just kind of drinking it slowly can really help. So you're getting some sort of oral satisfaction, but obviously you're not bringing in the calories, you're keeping the autophagy up. So those are really, really important things. We also need to make sure that you know, we're sleeping well, like, you know, fasting, especially if you're not used to it, is a stress on the system. So you don't want to introduce a big stress on your body if you're already overwhelmed by stress. In fact, it's usually a good idea to kind of lean into stress. It's like exercise. Like if you were to go in, if you were detrained and um, you wanted, your goal was to run a marathon, you wouldn't do that on day one or two, right? You would gradually build up. You might walk a mile the first day, then you might walk a mile and a half, right? You would just gradually progress and you would do it to where it was, you know, the least uncomfortable way as possible. So if you just push right into a fast, it's going to be really uncomfortable. You can still do it. It's just going to be really, really uncomfortable. So you kind of want to lean into it, gradually build your, what we call your fasting muscle, right? It's just like a muscle, just like anything else. You're building that over time by just leaning into that. So that's really important. Um, you know, another thing, and I know we had talked about this before we started, is that for many of us, we have a lot of toxins in our body fat. And so as we start to burn fat for fuel, we start to release those different toxins, which can cause more oxidative stress in the system. So for a lot of individuals, you know, it's a good idea, especially if your, your, your goal is really to lose body fat, you know that you've got a, a higher amount of toxins, that you want to take some sort of a binder. And there's a lot of different ones out there, zeolites, there's activated charcoal, there's fulvic and humic acids. I know you, I'm sure you have several like char, uh, what, bentonite clay, right? There's a lot of good ones that are out there that you can utilize. 
that's a really good idea when you're fasting. It's not going to break your fast and you're going to help get more toxins out of your system. Yeah, I developed, a, a, I developed a binder called Citricons. It has great yeah. fruit, citrus pectin, and folic humic right. acid. It's a yep. perfect thing to take because when you're, you're getting yep. these kind of detox symptoms, when you're fasting, you get headaches and you get kind of maybe a little achy or you, know, you start having uh, or even anxiety and whatnot, that can be toxins coming out of your fat cells, chemicals and heavy metals. And it's really smart to have a, a binder on board. Yeah, absolutely. When you're fasting, you got to remember that you are detoxing, you're cleansing. So you're putting yourself in that, that, that way of life, right? And that's actually a good thing. We need to be cleansing and detoxing every single day. It's a great time, again, to take those binders. That's really helpful. Um, another thing that can help is adaptogens. For some people, they have basically bad feedback, kind of like a bad radio station connection. They have bad feedback between their brain and their endocrine system, right? The system of their body that's producing hormones. And adaptogens come in and they like tune your antenna to where you get a better message. So now you're able to produce the right amount of cortisol, the right amount of thyroid hormone, the right amount of adrenaline and all the different endocrine hormones that you need to to be able to function well. So adaptogenic herbs are not gonna break your fast and they're really helpful for supporting your body so you can think clearly and have the energy you need while you're going through the fast. Ashwagandha and rhodiola and ginseng and things like that. So those are great. That's a great idea to use something along those lines as well. And uh, that can be really helpful for a fast because again, a fast is a stressor on the body. So things that can help mitigate that stress can be really, really beneficial. So um, I would say those are probably the biggest things to, to look out for and utilize. A lot of people ask me, should I take supplements on a fast? You know, there are some supplements that you do better with when you take them with a meal, like vitamin D, omega-3s, you know, stuff like that, digestive enzymes. You, you don't, obviously wouldn't want to take those. Um, and in general, if you're just like fasting one day a week, it's good to take some time off from a lot of supplements. Like it's, it's not a bad thing to take a day off of supplements. Now, the key ones you'd want in there are, would be your binder, like you talked about, um, adaptogens, maybe electrolytes if you want that. Uh, but beyond that, you really don't need anything extra beyond that. Yeah, and I really love the concept of, of taking an adaptogenic herb when you're fasting. Because I don't know about you, but I definitely feel like a surge of adrenaline and or cortisol when I'm fasting. My body is kind of like, what's going yeah. on here? We're starving. And uh, you get this release of cortisol and it's uncomfortable and it makes you want to eat. So taking an adaptogenic herb can help to dampen that response. Yeah, adaptogens and also magnesium actually can be really helpful there too. Magnesium is a great one to use. And sometimes people have trouble moving their bowels when they're fasting as well. So taking a little bit higher dose magnesium can help with that. You know, there are different herbs as well that can help with moving your bowels. Hydrating really well help, helps as well. You're going to get a better fasting experience if you move your bowels well in the morning. You'll just notice that you feel a lot better, a lot more calm uh, as you go through the fasting experience. Yeah, and you can do coffee enemas too. Yes. Um, not terribly yeah. popular, but you know, it certainly help you, uh, your body kind of process all the toxins that are coming out of your fat cells. I mean, just to illustrate this point, I had a friend of mine that uh, she went on a diet, she lost, she lost 100 pounds, and she developed a cyst at the base of her spine, which your body creates those to put toxins into them, kind of safely stored away. 
and then she had to have it surgically removed. But this is kind of something you, you have so many toxins coming out of your fat that you, you really you know need to be thinking about facilitating your body processing those. And coffee enemas binders are great yeah. ways to do that. Infrared sauna. I know you're a fan of sauna. Yes. Sauna is mm -hmm. a great thing to do when you're fasting. Helps really get those toxins out of the system as well. Yes. And so what about stevia? So like, say if you are, uh, you know, you're having your tea, you're trying to suppress ghrelin and feel full. A lot of the fasting mimicking diets use tea as well. Is it okay to use stevia? Is that creating an insulin response? I think it's going to be individual, uh, depending on the, the person. So anything that's going to stimulate more cravings, you know that it increased your insulin a little bit. So you really have to experiment with that. In general, I would say don't use the stevia, okay? However, you know, for some people, they're going to have better tolerance to that than others. And on top of that, I think it's important that people have a, some sort of a beneficial experience when they are fasting. So for some people... Um, having a little bit of stevia like in their morning coffee or tea or something like that just gives them a little bit more of a beneficial experience so they come back to fasting because really fasting is a lifestyle so you want to you don't need to be like you know a, a purist doesn't have to be it's not like one way uh, my way or the highway kind of idea um, you want to have a good experience you want to set yourself up for a good experience so if stevia gives you a little bit of pleasure doesn't overly stimulate cravings and hunger and it enables you to, to be able to successfully complete a fast and do it well, then I think that's a great thing. But if you are noticing more cravings, more irritability, then, you know, not something you want to use. And so do you want autophagy turned on all the time? Because I think a lot of people tend to think, oh, if something is good for you, then a lot more of it is good yeah. for you. And people can definitely go overboard with fasting or intermittent totally. fasting or push their body, even when their body is telling them to please stop. <laughs> so, yeah. so what is, where do we find that balance? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, our ancestors would do feast and famine cycling. So they never tried intentionally to do intermittent fasting or extended fasting unless it was some sort of like a religious purpose or something like that. However, they just didn't have access to food. But when they did, they would eat as much as they could. So feasting is built into our DNA just like fasting is. So we really need times where we are in a feasting mode as well as fasting. So when you're doing your intermittent fasting, during your eating period, you want to make sure you're eating really well. You're eating till full, right? Eating till you're really well satiated. That is the key there. Now, you don't want to be bloated and like exhausted after you eat. That's not, not a good sign. Um, however, you should be eating till you feel really satiated. You just don't feel like you need any more food. That's really what you're going for there. And for certain individuals, particularly depending on your level of insulin sensitivity. So there's gonna be a different way of fasting for somebody that's you know 50 pounds overweight and sedentary versus somebody that is very lean and very active, right? The leaner and active person is gonna need more periods of, of feasting because once your body fat gets to a certain level, your body goes into panic mode and it will start to break down your own muscle tissue and will shut down certain hormones, like it will inhibit uh, active thyroid hormone production, sex hormones. So for men, testosterone will go down. For women, estrogen, progesterone levels will go down. So we don't wanna hit that point. And that's where kind of doing the right amount of feasting and, and fasting 
will help you get the best benefits of both. Feasting helps turn on all those hormones to activate thyroid hormone, helps activate the production of uh, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone for men. However, we, if we are constantly eating and we have insulin resistance, then we shut down our ability to produce those hormones. So again, there's this, there's this happy median that we've got to have. So we need that feast, famine, cycling to take place. So for some women, particularly, I would say the hardest uh, demographic to uh, kind of figure out a good fasting schedule for is young menstruating women that are very active. They exercise intensely on a regular basis, and they're also very stressed. And oftentimes they have young kids, right? And so they're not sleeping great at night. So that individual needs to be really, really careful because they're already low in body fat. And if the body senses that that's getting too low from intermittent fasting and all the exercise that they're doing, and they have too much stress hormones going on from their lifestyle, then it's going to shut down overall sex hormone production. And they can feel terrible, lose, start losing hair, be really fatigued, not be able to sleep at night. So it's a sign you're either doing too much exercise or too much fasting. You probably need to dial or, or just have too much overall stress in your system. So you need to dial those things back if that's the case. So a lot of times what I'll do for that demographic is I'll do something called crescendo fasting, where we do like a 16-hour fast, but only two days a week, non-consecutive days. Think about it like exercise. For some individuals, they feel great. When they're, able, when they're exercising every single day, as long as they change up muscle groups, they just feel great getting a, getting a really good workout every day. How other people need, they really need a recovery day between workouts or they're going to overwhelm their system. So it's kind of the same thing with fasting. For some people, they're going to feel great when they do intermittent fasting every day. For other people, they need a recovery day, maybe two recovery days before they do another bout of fasting. So that's kind of where the crescendo fasting comes in. Let's say you did it like Monday and Friday, for example. And if you feel good with that, then you could try Monday, Wednesday, Friday, right? So kind of the next graduation up and see how you feel with that, right? And the other days, do just do a 12-hour fast, so a 12-hour eating window. And then, um, you know, on your fasting days, you do the 16-hour fast. And you can experiment with that. So those are, that would be one demographic. And then also people that are older women that are lean men, I usually have no problems getting intermittent fasting. After about a week or two, they, they usually adapt really well to it and it's, they have no problems with it for the most part. One other demographic that can be challenging is women with like chronic infections or maybe they're being, maybe they have mold exposure or something like that, like Lyme disease. And it's just overwhelming their system, right? They have this chronic brain inflammation. They oftentimes, and they're lean typically, uh, they oftentimes can have trouble as well, right? So kind of utilizing the same strategy. And for, for a lot of those individuals, we really need to work on the binders, you know, different things like that to help detox the body as well while they are, while they are doing the fasting. But the more that you kind of push into it appropriately without overwhelming your system, the more that you'll develop your, your fasting muscle. Yeah. Is there anyone who should not be fasting? Like definitely this yeah. is not for them. For sure. Well, pregnant women, uh, particularly as they get into like that second and third trimester, you know, doing any sort of intermittent fasting, probably not a good idea. Maybe a 12 hour overnight fast, depending on, on the woman. Some women find that that's no problem. Uh, even as you start to nurse, you know, other than a 12 hour fast, I don't typically recommend uh, more fasting. 
as the nursing goes on and as you start to wean the baby off of nursing, you can start to experiment and go back to, you know, some sort of uh, crescendo fast or something along those lines. And that can be a good idea. So that's one population group. Another population group would be young children. Most of the time, young children, you know, they're, they're growing so fast. So they're probably not a good idea to fast them. However, I did notice that my children would sleep a lot. Like they easily can sleep, you know, 12 hours. And so they were doing a you know, 12, 14 hour fast oftentimes without any issues. You know, I have two four and a half year old twins and a two year old. They all do some sort of intermittent fasting because I'm just, I guess we're just blessed. Our kids will, will sleep. <laughs> they sleep late and that, and that works out well. And then the other population group would be like extreme athletes, right? Uh, like NBA players and stuff like that. If you're, if you're exercising more than two to three hours a day, it can be really problematic to doing any sort of intermittent fasting beyond that 12 hour fast that I recommend. And then anybody that has a history of an eating disorder, anorexia, bulimia, I always say, you know, you shouldn't be making the decision to do intermittent fasting. That should be a discussion that you have with your psychologist or, you know, a really trusted and loving accountability partner who should give you the go ahead, right? Give you the approval to start to do that. And that's because they think you're, you're healed, right? Or you're, you've matured enough to be able to handle doing some intermittent fasting without it re-aggravating that eating disorder. Yeah. I mean, I know some people that say they go visit their family. They eat a really good, good, healthy diet. They go visit their family and their family's eating garbage and going out to eat. And they take that opportunity to do fasting. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> They're yeah, not exactly. eating bad food in their body. Uh, well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was so informative, so detailed, and a lot of amazing tips in there to get you guys going on this. And I've kind of fallen off the wagon. I was doing like one day fasting a week. For a while, I need to get back on that. Uh, I've been doing too much COVID stress eating. <laughs> getting, uh, working on my quarantine 15. Um, so thanks for, for coming on the show. Tell us where we can find you and learn more about your work. And you have a fasting summit as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks so much, Wendy. It's really an honor to be on your podcast. And you can find me at drjockers.com. I also have a podcast as well, Functional Nutrition Podcast. So you can check me out there, YouTube, Facebook, and you know, all the different social media channels as well. Fantastic. And, and tell us about your fasting summit. I know it was it's done already, but I'm sure it's going to still have on your website. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I interviewed, I believe, like 30 of the top experts when it comes to intermittent and extended fasting. So we talked about fasting and how it impacts your brain, your skin. A couple experts like Dr. Nasha Winters that talked about fasting for cancer, right? And how she talked about, you know, the best strategy for fasting pre and post chemotherapy and radiation to get the best results. A lot of, a lot of great research coming out on that. So yeah, a lot of really great information on that. I think it's just fastingtransformation.com, I believe. And uh, you can get a free seven day pass to check that out. Okay, fantastic. Well, David, thanks for coming on the show. And everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to the Myers Detox podcast. Uh, you can go check out my work at myersdetox.com. And every week we explore topics related to detoxification of heavy metals and chemicals and everything you know on the in the health spectrum to support that. So thanks for tuning in every week. I'll talk to you next week. The Myers Detox Podcast is created and hosted by Wendy Myers. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. 
This podcast, including Wendy Myers and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.